The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. The election of the first radically pro-choice President of the United States is wreaking havoc in the American Catholic Church, destroying its fragile internal cohesion. President Joe Biden, whose own internal cohesion is discreetly acknowledged to be in a fragile state, has made it clear that he really does intend to encourage women to have late-term abortions, to open up women's bathrooms to trans women, and to force nuns to pay for their employees' contraceptive and abortion pills. It seems like he's planning to feed into the shredder any bits of the Catholic magisterium that might offend his vice president, Kamala Harris, an Olympic-class offence-taker, whose views on Orthodox Catholicism read to me like extracts from the awful disclosures of Maria Monk, rewritten by Black Lives Matter. Now, there was a time not so long ago when a devout Catholic president with this sort of policy agenda would have been shunned by socially conservative Catholic Democrats. But that particular tribe has been wiped out. Today's Catholic Democrats are intensely relaxed about gay marriage, remarriage after divorce, and, it goes without saying, artificial birth control. They don't necessarily share President Biden's tolerance of very late-term abortions, but they're moving in that direction. Their bishops are more conservative on these matters, but, as we discussed on Holy Smoke a couple of weeks ago, when they tried to point out on Inauguration Day that the Biden administration was planning to trash Catholic teaching and remove legal protection from social conservatives who insisted on adhering to it, they got slapped down by the pro-Biden Vatican and its self-appointed representative on the Conference of Bishops, Cardinal Blaise Supich of Chicago. I say self-appointed because although Supich has since had a meeting with Francis that his supporters portrayed as a papal pat on the back, I'm told that the Pope is getting a bit sick of the Cardinal's presumption. Supich, charmless, pleased with himself, isn't popular with his fellow bishops. And if Francis is going to have a Pope's man on the USCCB, he'd rather it was someone who was better at concealing his ambitions. America's Catholic bishops, not being especially woke on the subject of abortion, are always going to have reservations about the Biden-Harris administration, particularly after it becomes just the Harris administration. On the other hand, they've just had it confirmed that the Pope hates the Republicans so intensely that he'll pull the rug from under bishops who give Joe Biden too hard a time over abortion. So what can we expect? Let's take a look at that reliable weather vane the glad-handing Cardinal Archbishop of New York, Timothy Dolan. He belongs to a faction in the US church consisting of just Timothy Dolan. Formerly very pally with GOP power brokers, he's now reported to be warming towards pro-abortion champion Joe Biden. Well, I think we could have seen that one coming. As for Supich and the McCarrick protégés, Tobin of Newark and Gregory of Washington, need you ask... Their policy of constructive engagement with the administration is basically a race to see 
who can hoist the white flag highest on pro-life issues and who can produce the most extravagant rhetoric in praise of Biden's commitment to social justice. To cut a long story short, everyone on the Catholic left is enjoying the honeymoon and that really is all there is to say about it. In conservative circles, meanwhile, there's the predictable misery that overtakes right-leaning Catholic public intellectuals and well-funded institutions whenever the Republicans lose and the doors of the White House are slammed in their faces. It's only to be expected, as is the fury of more populist, very right-wing Catholic pundits who've built big followings on YouTube and social media and are now being silenced by the tech giants who empowered them in the first place. In the past few years, these Catholic populist reactionaries, or radical conservatives, or whatever you want to call them, have become quite a familiar part of the US religious landscape. And familiar is the right word here. Most of them dabble in conspiracy theories, which have quietly flourished in America for centuries. Admittedly, in the past, Catholics were more likely to be the victims rather than the proponents of these theories. But given that powerful bishops were exposed as sexually compromised criminal liars, just as social media was taking off, it's not surprising that quite a few US Catholics have embraced what Richard Hofstadter famously referred to in a 1963 essay as the paranoid style in American politics. These very conservative US Catholics have built their own media brands, including Church Militant and Lysite News, both of which publish conspiracy-flavoured material, but also break real stories about the corruption that's flourished under Francis. I see Lysite has just been kicked off YouTube. Maybe I'm turning into a conspiracy theorist myself, but if it emerged that the Vatican had a hand in that, I don't think too many jaws would drop open. To repeat, this populist modus operandi is familiar to Americans. It was part of the furniture 200 years before they went online, and in the digital age, despite all the melodrama of last year, it remains what Hofstadter called it, a style rather than the basis of a vote-winning ideology. Specific conspiracy theories in America also have tended to be relatively local and short-lived, creating mild panics rather than pogroms. In the early 1960s, the enemy was supposed to be using fluoride in water to, as Hofstadter put it, rot people's brains so they became socialists. That didn't work, so today's toxin of choice is a coronavirus vaccine that will, depending on who you talk to, either implicate you in abortion or surreptitiously tinker with your DNA. Or whatever. The do-it-yourself quality of American conspiracy culture perhaps explains its enduring appeal and also the fact that Catholics are coming relatively late to the party. Until a few years ago, DIY epistemology could get you into serious trouble with the hierarchy. But that was in the days when conservative Catholics showed deference to bishops, and in any case, didn't want to play the same games as evangelical conspiracy entrepreneurs. Now they're helping themselves to any meme that takes their fancy, including that staple of traditional conspiracy theories, the Freemasons. Masons were never popular with US Catholics, of course, but in America, in contrast to Catholic Europe, the Masonic Illuminati New World Conspiracy Bundle was assembled by fundamentalist Protestants who sold it as part of a wider apocalyptic package. Now the ultra-conservative Catholics are at it too, which would be creepy if it wasn't also amateurish, reminding us that DIY is essentially a hobby. But... 
the culture wars have produced another response from Catholic conservatives, one that draws on a European intellectual tradition that's thoroughly unfamiliar to American Catholics, or indeed Americans in general. A small group of academics, clergy and media pundits have revived an antiquated Catholic political philosophy known as integralism, previously associated with right-wing French Catholics, inspired by Pope Pius X's vision of a church purged of modernism that would command the allegiance of secular rulers. The central proposition of integralism is that an authoritarian state should conduct its business in strict accordance with the doctrines of the Catholic Church, an idea rooted in the political philosophy of St Thomas Aquinas. Just how much coercion will be necessary in order to move the modern United States in this direction is a question that leading US integralists tend to shy away from. But the more outspoken among them admit with some enthusiasm, that it means using aggressive tactics against the secular liberals who've seized control of public institutions. And if that means employing some of the same tactics associated with secularists, chief among them the curtailment of religious freedom, then so be it. You can't make an omelette without breaking eggs, preferably organic eggs laid by happy chickens on farms run by mass-going farmers whose cooperative ventures flourish under the beneficent gaze of equally devout public servants who devour the writings of St Thomas Aquinas as if they were airport thrillers, a genre, incidentally, that would be unlikely to survive under an integralist regime if it were felt to be undermining the common good. The temptation to poke fun at integralism is one that very few of its critics can resist. Some of its advocates take themselves very seriously, using their knowledge of medieval scholasticism to fill the gaps in their densely theoretical arguments. The fact that quite a few of them are recent converts to Catholicism may explain the whiff of naivety and autodidacticism that surrounds their chin-stroking deliberations. I know that sounds patronising, and I certainly don't mean to apply this description to a small number of genuinely sophisticated thinkers who are sympathetic to integralism. For example, Patrick Deneen, Professor of Political Science at Notre Dame, who criticises liberalism from the point of view of a socially conservative Christian Democrat rather than a utopian integralist. Or possibly the world's only moderate integralist, Thomas Pink, Professor of Philosophy at King's College London, for whom the integralist confessional Catholic state is an ideal that in the short term can help secular states forge an ethical consensus based on natural law. But for a clearer idea of the darker fantasies indulged by integralists in America, I recommend reading Integralism, a handbook, co-authored by the English Dominican Father Thomas Crean and Alan Fimister, who teaches theology and church history at St. John Fianney Theological Seminary in Colorado. This book spells out the implications of living in a divinely ordered Catholic state. For example, quote, the husband has by natural right the authority to govern his wife so the family may attain its end. If her domestic duties are not thereby harmed, the wife may, by her husband's consent, labour outside the home, although in a well-ordered society this will not be necessary for the maintenance of the family. The handbook notes that the bodily differences between men and women also for the most part give rise to psychological differences which favour the headship of the husband. And elsewhere in the book, 
In extreme circumstances, the authorities of the church may take a baptised child, even from its parental home, if its religious education cannot otherwise be secured. And, since the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, it is not possible for any province of Christendom to stand unless temporal power be generally by law restricted to those who are themselves submissive to the gospel. Thus, in a formerly Catholic society, not only idolaters and atheists must be generally excluded from the legislature and from the higher executive and judicial offices, but also all the unbaptized, as well as all adherents of heretical and schismatic bodies. Unbaptized persons may receive certain civil rights, although not citizenship per se. Jews may worship freely, monotheistic cults may be tolerated, but idolatrous cults are justly subject to suppression. The temporal power may use bloody means, even capital punishment, when acting on its own authority. Within Christendom, it may also do this against spiritual offences like heresy if they gravely harm the common temporal good. Most of the ideas in this handbook of integralism are derived from carefully selected bits of Catholic teaching, as expanded by Aquinas, and embodied in the social teachings of various popes, especially Pope Leo XIII, for whom the dignity of labour and social justice were integral to the common good. But on almost every page, there's a ferocious emphasis on illiberal measures that rulers, they're always called rulers, are entitled to take in order to protect Christendom. The book is written in comically anachronistic language that perhaps tells us something about its intended audience, I can imagine it being lapped up by 22-year-old pipe smokers who've recently converted to Latin mass Catholicism and started addressing their friends as, My dear fellow, it's a face. Let's hope they grow out of it. But not all expressions of integralism are as self-consciously fogeyish as the Crean and Fimister handbook. In March last year, for example, The Atlantic magazine published an article by Adrian Vermeule, professor of constitutional law at Harvard Law School, attacking the conservative legal philosophy known as originalism, which seeks to restrain liberal activism and protect religious freedom by interpreting the US Constitution as it was originally understood by its authors. It's an approach endorsed by the four most conservative justices on the Supreme Court, Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. Professor Vermeule, a social conservative who converted to Catholicism as recently as 2016, is one of a growing number of right-wingers who think it's time to ditch or modify originalism in favour of a new conservative activism that forces liberal ideology into retreat. But the mule's alternative, which he calls common good constitutionalism, doesn't look anything like a political philosophy that would be endorsed by a mainstream political party anywhere in the free world. It does look an awful lot like integralism, and that's because it is. In his Atlantic article, Vermeule was addressing a secular readership, so he didn't mention the Catholic Church, which was perhaps sensible, though it would have been interesting to hear him expound on his suggestion in a 2019 post on a blog devoted to Catholic legal theory that US immigration policy should automatically give priority to confirmed Catholics. And in the same post, 
Vermeule mentions in passing his support for the idea that natural law ultimately requires a form of Catholic world government to which nation-state is subordinate. But what Vermeule does say in the Atlantic piece is startling enough. He writes that common good constitutionalism, quotes, will favour a powerful presidency ruling over a powerful bureaucracy, the latter acting through principles of administrative laws in a morality with a view to promoting solidarity and subsidiarity. The bureaucracy will be seen not as an enemy, but as the strong hand of legitimate rule. The libertarian concept of free speech, that government is forbidden to judge the quality and moral worth of public speech, will fall under the axe, as will libertarian conceptions of property rights and economic rights, insofar as they bar the state from inducing duties of community and solidarity in the use and distribution of resources. Selfish individualism will be not just rejected, but, quotes, stamped as abominable. And what about public opinion? Under a common good constitutionalist regime, for Mule's choice of word, the law will teach, habituate and reform its subjects, subjects, no, not citizens, who may come to thank the ruler for encouraging them to form more authentic desires for the individual and common goods, better habits and beliefs that better track and promote communal well-being. And if they don't, the state will enjoy authority to curb the social and economic pretensions of the urban gentry liberals who so often place their own satisfactions, financial and sexual, and the good of their class or social milieu above the common good. Well, I wonder how that went down with the urban gentry liberals who make up the Atlantic's readership. It certainly drew a swift response from Vermeule's academic colleagues, Garrett Epps, Professor of Constitutional Law at the University of Baltimore, responded to Vermeule in The Atlantic, describing the article as an argument for authoritarian extremism, noting the strong similarity between common good constitutionalism and the principles of phalangism, the authoritarian conservative Catholic philosophy of General Franco's Spain, which in its early years had been openly fascist. Professor Epps concluded... Phalangists, too, spoke warmly of God, of the favoured role of the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church, of the sacred family and of the common welfare. But they ruled by censorship, secret police, the garrote and the firing squad. We need not list the other 20th century authoritarian regimes that embraced eternal values but ruled by terror. In fact, Epps continued, my deepest objection to Vermeule's anti-constitutionalist philosophy is not that it is harmful and anti-human, but simply that in the end it's so banal. This movie has had more remakes than A Star is Born. The opening scenes are always set amid the delicate towers of St. Augustine's imaginary city of God. But the last scene takes place every time in dank basements soaked with very real blood. Well, that's a lovely purple passage with which to end a piece. But does anyone seriously imagine that the American Integralist Project will draw real blood? Despite today's fashion for medieval-themed fantasy, no one apart from a few scholars, commentators and religious obsessives is watching this particular movie. So far as I'm aware, not one member of Congress, not one US Catholic bishop, 
has fully endorsed common good constitutionalism. As for academia, Vermeule's most prominent ally is Gladden Pappen, an associate professor of politics at the University of Dallas, which is actually a small conservative Catholic liberal arts college. Last October, Pappin and Vermeule co-authored an article in the New York Post defending the Vatican's horrifying secret deal with Beijing, praising its deep and ancient theological and political logic and making no mention of the new wave of persecution unleashed by President Xi as he compels Chinese Catholics from both the official and underground churches to, well, worship the Communist Party. It might seem inexplicable that Papin, a Trump supporter, should take this stance just as Mike Pompeo was attempting, unsuccessfully, to draw the Pope's attention to China's grotesque crimes. But it's less mysterious when you learn that Integralism believes that all temporal rulers must yield to the authority of the Vicar of Christ, that, in the words of Aquinas, they are subject to him as to our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Whether Pope Francis appreciates this filial loyalty is another question, however. We don't know whether he's aware of the existence of American and British integralism. If he is, I suspect he's disgusted by it, since it's an extreme expression of the rigid Catholic orthodoxy against which he rails so incessantly. What we do know is that in 2017, his close advisor and attack dog, Father Antonio Spadaro, SJ, co-authored an article entitled Evangelical Fundamentalism and Catholic Integralism, which accused right-wing Protestants and Catholics of working together to transform America into a theocratic state. The article was a shockingly ignorant piece of work, confusing classic Protestant fundamentalism, which isn't theocratic, with the minority of hardline evangelicals who do espouse so-called dominion theology, which envisages some sort of Christian dictatorship. Spadaro's article was also unable to name a single Catholic integralist, instead applying the label to the definitely non-integralist church militant website and, ludicrously, Steve Bannon. Even so, Spadaro had obviously learned of the emergence of integralist philosophy in the United States and was using it to give everyone on the Catholic right a good kicking. We could waste a lot of time debating how much the new integralism has in common with clerico-fascist or ultranationalist movements that describe themselves as integralist in the early 20th century. I'd argue there are striking similarities, but one big difference. Unlike, say, Action Francaise, common good constitutionalism isn't nationalist. The charge that sticks, to my mind, is the claim by the Catholic author John Smurak, resolute defender of capitalism, that integralism amounts to a sort of Catholic Sharia, grabbing everything a Pope has said in the past, treating it as infallible, and turning it into a divinely revealed political programme, rather as many Muslim states draw all their civil law, Sharia, from the Quran and successive hadiths. But in the end, this isn't a political programme anyone's going to vote for. The new integralism is little more than medievalist cosplay. It stands about as much chance of refashioning the US Constitution as, say, a Gettysburg reenactment does of affecting the actual outcome of the American Civil War. Its real significance lies in the ammunition it hands to the enemies of Orthodox Catholicism, 
and indeed all Christians trying to protect themselves from what promises to be the most dogmatically secularist administration in the history of the Republic. In its issue of February the 3rd, the New Republic magazine published an apparently well-researched, but actually horribly misinformed essay by Peter Hammond Schwartz, entitled Originalism is Dead, Long Live Catholic Natural Law. It portrayed the scorched-earth political theology of Catholic integralism as the fruit of a decades-long conspiracy by influential Catholic conservatives to replace the American Enlightenment with a medieval cosmology. And central to this project, according to Schwartz, is a conservative-dominated Supreme Court, as personified by its newest member, the devoutly Catholic Amy Coney Barrett. To ram home the point, the article was accompanied by a depiction of Barrett as a bishop sitting in judgment on a gold throne. Schwartz's diatribe and Michelle Rowan's horrible illustration reek of the anti-Catholic paranoia described by Hofstadter. They also grossly defame Justice Barrett, who's such a strict originalist that she's prepared to uphold the US Constitution even if it conflicts with her Catholic conscience, an attitude deplored by integralists. But the readers of the New Republic, who include many people in the Biden-Harris administration, won't be aware of that. Politicians and bureaucrats already deeply unsympathetic to the Catholic Church and the pro-life cause will read this article and many others like it that I suspect are in the works and assume that the rights of conscience claimed by Orthodox Catholics form part of the subversive reactionary fantasies of a tiny number of integralists. And therefore, to use the integralist's own language, they must be stamped as abominable.